Father, thank you for giving us growingly a heart for our world. To see your gospel going forth in our neighborhoods and workplaces and families, in our own nation and other nations across the world. Thank you, Lord, for the work that Josh and Lisa are a part of, for OM and all that is happening in Africa. And Lord, we pray for your continued blessing and provision in a profound way upon them. Pray, Lord, that you would lead us as a church as we seek to impact other countries for the team going to Bolivia in July for for other opportunities to see other nations reach with the gospel. Lord, we're excited about preparing for your return. And we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. That's the good news for all men. Everywhere. Father, thank you for the the service men and women who serve our country as we celebrate this Memorial Day. We, we thank you for the armed forces and for those that have served and continue to serve. We pray for your protection upon them. We pray that you would use them to fulfill the, the necessary task of protecting our nation and of being involved in other nations for good and for peace. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we, we thank you that we have in our hands a living word, that you come to address us. We're not here to just study a book. We're here to hear the voice of the shepherd. And we thank you that you are here to address us through your word, through the gift of preaching. And we ask, Father, for ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us, individually and as a people. Address us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. The five to eight-year-olds can make their way out. And if you would open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. As you're doing that, let me just, Josh said that there are a number of these books available out on the table along with the card that he mentioned, so you can pick those up. Also just want to ask that you be in prayer for the Bolivian team that is uh, assembling for the last two weeks of July. We have about 20 folks right now that will be part of that team. Part of that team is a medical team. They'll be focusing on caring for the children at an orphanage. And uh, part of that team are folks going to serve alongside them. And then we'll also be serving uh, the Sudasana ministry. Uh, Andy Baker, who was here a few weeks ago, leads that ministry uh, in El Alto. And that's a ministry that just reaches out and cares for women coming out of prostitution and is a is a gospel witness uh, and a provision for them. So if you're interested in being a part of that team, please, by all means, let us know. Please pray, because as we go, uh, we go for you. We go as a part of this church. We're sent on your behalf, and we're very excited to do that. Also, let me just um, say thanks to a number of you came up after I shared a few weeks ago um, an encouragement on timeliness on Sunday mornings. Uh, As we gather, I just shared um, several weeks ago that we gather with, with the Savior. We gather to hear his voice. We gather to celebrate him together. And uh, I just pointed out how important it is that from the very first moment that we lift our voices, that we do that together. Because, you know, really, that's the difference between Sunday morning and our devotion times, right? I mean, if apart from the corporate nature, we could just stay home in our prayer closets and meet with the Lord or listen on the Internet to some speaker. But something happens as God's people come together. And my appeal was that we 
plan so that we're all here early so that as we begin, we begin together. And, and I know numbers of you have made efforts to do that. I want to say thank you. And I want to encourage all of us to continue to pursue that because um, if you're like me, changes of behavior just take time. It takes time to change. But it's important. Some things are relatively important. Some things are very important. This is very important because we gather into him because he's our king. Amen? Well, look with me at Mark chapter 9. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 14 to 29. Mark 9, beginning in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Mountaintop experiences are glorious, but they don't last. Remember our wedding day. October 15, 1977. It was a beautiful fall day. The sun was out. The leaves were changing color. It was a beautiful ceremony. We had a harp playing music in the background. We had Mike Hickman along with my sister greeting folks as they came in. Ted Williams drove us through the streets beeping his horn till it burned out afterwards. (laughs) C.J. Mahaney came to perform his first wedding. And we drove off in a decorated car. It It was a beautiful day. It was a mountaintop experience. It was one of those times you just want to savor and enjoy. But it's over all so quickly. Then we had to re-enter the world. We needed to go back to Liz's family's house. She had left some clothes in the washing machine. (laughs) And when we returned there, she had relatives that wanted to spend a long time taking pictures, which wasn't how I was planning the day. Then we needed to return to the church building to rest, to retrieve a Bible and 
And, and then we had this strange noise in the, and we couldn't understand what was wrong with the car. And, and then a hubcap flew off and we realized, oh, they put, so I had the idea of putting rocks in the hubcaps. That was good. And so by the time we got to the, the park where we were starting our honeymoon, uh, the restaurant was closed. We were famished. Welcome to life. And over these 37 years, we've had many mountaintop experiences. Times that you just want to savor. Times, times you just want to enjoy. Times that you're, you know God is present in a pronounced way and you're enjoying his presence, times of, of romance and well, wonderful experiences. But life, life is lived in the valley. And we've had many other times of faith challenges and difficulties. Because like you, pastors and wives have challenges in their lives. Mountaintops are great, but life, life's lived in the valley. We have an account in Exodus 24 of God calling Moses up on Mount Sinai. And Moses spent, think about this, 40 days in the glorious presence of God. What must that have been like? 40 days, that's a long time in God's glory and then we came down from the mountain how it must have stunned him to find Aaron and the Jewish people constructing a golden calf worshipping an idol mountaintops are great but life is lived in the valley and like Moses, Jesus, took his disciples to a mountaintop experience. We saw that early in the same chapter. In Mark 9, Jesus took Peter and James and John. He took them up on a high mountain and they saw Jesus be glorified. They saw his clothes being radiant. They saw him speaking with Moses and Elijah. What must that have been like? Peter wanted to stay there. Peter had the great idea of constructing some tabernacles. Let's, it's about the time of the Feast of the Tabernacle. Perhaps we could celebrate here for a week or two. Let's, let's hang out here. This is great. I love the mountaintop. And the father had to rebuke him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when they came down from the mountain, well, like Moses, Jesus found his flock in confusion. He hears this argument, a counter, heated encounter between the nine disciples that were left and the scribes. The scribes, remember, are the religious leaders who have determined that Jesus is possessed by Satan and in, verse, in chapter 3 declared that his ministry was empowered by the devil. Chapter 7, they attacked him for not keeping the law. These guys are antagonistic. Their minds are made up. And they are arguing with the disciples. So Jesus says, what are you arguing about? And a man speaks up. I brought my son. He's very ill. He's demonized. I brought him to your disciples for deliverance. And they could not help. And Jesus, coming down from the mount, encountering the unbelief, says, verse 19, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus is emoting. He's experiencing. He's he's identifying the very root issue 
of what it means to live in the valley. What life in the valley is all about. What it means to live in the midst of doubt and unbelief. Jesus had given many convincing proofs of who he was. Healing the sick, raising the dead, delivering the demonized, calming the storms, multiplying food. There should have been no doubt who he was, yet yet Jesus lived among those who did not accept him. And he identified the issue. Unbelief. Doubt. See, a disciple, by definition, is one who believes. It's one who has faith in the Savior, trusts him, and does his work. And these disciples and these disciples do that imperfectly, don't we? We believe imperfectly. We, we seek to follow him, but we do so with doubt, with unbelief. We do so in a way that, that doesn't always reflect the glory and the power of the kingdom. And this passage is given to us to reflect upon the need for faith, how faith works in the life of a believer. Each of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this encounter following the Mount of Transfiguration. Each preserve this account because it is a critical marker of the journey of faith. Here we understand how faith works. Here we understand the priority of faith in the life of a believer. And no matter where you are, whether you're a follower of Christ, whether you are seeking Him or, or you have yet to submit your life to Him, this speaks loudly to our lives. Here we recognize that to experience God's power We must believe God's Son. Three markers of this journey. In in verses 14 to 20, we see that Jesus reveals our helplessness. Verses 21 to 24, Jesus helps us to believe. And in verses 25 to 29, Jesus empowers humble faith. I hope this encourages you. This we see it pictures here that we can identify with. And the first is, is, is how Jesus reveals the helplessness of the disciples. He's actually been doing that now since the chapter before. When, remember, Peter recognized who Jesus was. Probably speaking on behalf of the other disciples, he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms Peter. And that must have been an incredible highlight. That no doubt is the center point. That's the apex, in a sense, of this gospel. Is as we understand, as the disciples understand, who this Messiah is. That Jesus is the one that they've been longing for. The one that the Jewish people have been looking for. The one who will restore all things. The one who will make all all things right. And no doubt they felt pretty well positioned to take their place in this new government. They could be in a place of real influence. This is the Messiah and we are his disciples. But their exuberance was short-lived. Because remember Jesus said, let me tell you what a Messiah does. The Messiah is to suffer. The Messiah is to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then on the heels of that is a reeling from understanding how could the Messiah be killed. He adds, and guys, guys, if anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, it's not just for me to die, but for you as well. 
if you're going to follow in my footsteps, it's a, it's a path of suffering, a path of sacrifice. And no doubt these disciples, as they're pondering what that means, feel very helpless. As we explore the gospel, as we embrace the gospel, we as well ought to feel helpless. We need God's grace to follow his steps, to follow in his sufferings. And now the nine have a fresh message of that, a fresh awareness of that, as he's left the nine to take Peter, James, and John up in the Mount of Transfiguration. And these guys now have a demonized boy that's presented to them. And they seek to cast the demon out. No doubt they did so with some sense of uh, of hopefulness because they had been commissioned by the Lord to follow him, to do his work. They had undoubtedly cast demons out before as they had been sent out. But this demon would not respond. This demon would not leave. And to make matters worse, there are scribes there, these educated religious leaders who are there to mock them, to make fun of them, to hackle them. No doubt gleeful that they have an inability to do the work of ministry. Challenging their faith, taunting them. You talk big when Jesus is here, but where's your game when he's gone? The voice of Satan the accuser of the brothers. It's hard to be full of faith when gifted, smart people are forcefully arguing with you. It's hard to have faith in a world full of scribes. So the disciples are freshly aware of their helplessness. And the father, well, it's hard to imagine how helpless this father felt. Imagine... Just a single day in the life of this father. Since childhood, this demon has seized his son. Luke tells us it's his only child. And he throws him to the ground and he foams in his mouth and grits his teeth and becomes stiff as a board. Many times being cast into the fire or to water as this demon seeks to destroy him. By the way, this gives us a great insight into the motivation of Satan and the demonic principalities. Satan and his demons hate mankind because man is created uniquely in the image of God. We are image bearers. And so anytime Satan can destroy a person, be it a baby, a child, or an adult, He will seek to do it. And this dad has been caring for and watching his son who who has the spirit that's made him deaf and mute. He can't hear. He can't speak. Think of how he felt seeing his maimed son wallowing in the dirt, staring up with an unearthly look through terror-filled eyes. He can't communicate. He is so afraid. And it's not just a single day, but day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. It's hard to conceive how difficult that must be. You know, if you're a parent, you know this that you would much prefer to suffer than to see your children suffer. It's much harder to suffer. I would suffer ten times rather than my child to suffer once. And this dad has had to watch his only son suffer terribly for years. And so he comes to Jesus hoping for help and Jesus isn't there and his disciples aren't able to help And how hopeless he must feel. How numb. How desperate. Jesus 
uses events like this, circumstances like this, to reveal our hopelessness, our helplessness. Whether it's to the disciples or the Father, whether it's our lives. Maybe this morning, when you consider your own life, you know that you're in the valley with trials that you can't see the end of. Maybe it's a physical hardship, an infirmity, or a financial need that never seems to end. The weight is crushing. And you can feel so alone. This passage is written to give us hope. This passage speaks to you today. Because in the midst of our need, this passage reveals that God allows us to experience helplessness so that we'll turn to Him and find genuine hope, genuine help. I love the promise in Isaiah 40. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Can you relate to that? If you're feeling weak this morning, relate to this dad. Jesus Jesus engages this dad. First, he reveals our helplessness. Secondly, we see that Jesus helps us to believe. And he helps this dad to believe by engaging him, by asking him a question. He could have just healed the boy. Jesus could have in a moment healed the boy. He doesn't need to ask the dad for information, right? He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows everything that he needs to know about this boy to heal him. But he doesn't just heal him. He engages the Father. He enters His world. He allows his father to, this Father to tell His story and share His heart, to expose His desperation, to come face to face with His own desperation, to show Him that Jesus wants to help Him. And so He asks Him a question. He draws Him out. He listens to Him. And the Father responds If you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice how completely the father has identified with his son. He's not just asking for compassion and help for his son, but for himself. Have compassion on us and help us. He's desperate. His faith had been shaken by the disciples' inability to help. And now though his faith is weak and small, he's at least looking in the right direction. But he's not sure. He's not sure if Jesus can help. No doubt he's looked in Jesus' eyes and seen that he wants to help. Undoubtedly, he's aware that this is a man of compassion and care, that he would help me if he could, but he's not sure if he can. He's sure he cares, but he's not sure he can change things. After year, after year, after year, he's not sure that he's ready to really have hope. That's what happens when we have extended trials. And as I've been preparing this week, I've been praying for those of you particularly with extended trials. I I know something of what that feels like. To have a trial that seems like it'll it'll never end. There's no hope. It's one thing to have a pain or a sickness or a need that resolves itself in a few weeks or even a few months. But when, when, when you're sick, when you have a back problem, when you have a pain, when you have a disease that goes on week after week, month after month, year after year, a hopelessness sets in. When there are financial needs or relational needs, there's somebody you care about, you're trying to 
help and reach out to a parent or a child, a friend, and it's the relationship is broken, it's strained, it, there seems to be no hope, despair sets in. And our eyes become more fixed on the circumstances than on the Lord. That problem becomes our God. It, it, it consumes our horizon and our hearts are overwhelmed. That's all we can see. I love the story in Second Kings 6 of Elisha's servant. Remember, he, he gets up and he goes out in the morning and an Aramean army with horses and chariots have surrounded the city coming for Elisha. The, the king wants to get this prophet that keeps telling the king of Israel what he's doing. And he wakes up Elisha. He says the, the, the city is surrounded with chariots and horses. And Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, at first glance, that would appear to be positive thinking that goes nowhere. I mean, really, Elisha, this, these aren't pretend people and they're not just going away. They're really here. And Elisha knows something that his servant needs to know. That, that the spiritual realm is a very real realm. That God's help is a very present help. He needs to see what God is doing. He needs to be more aware of what God is doing than what man is doing. But for Elisha's servant, the problems fill her, his horizons. And for some of you this morning, your problem fills your horizons. It's the first thing you think about in the morning. It's what consumes your thoughts through the day. It's what saps your joy, saps your happiness. It's the last thing you think about at night. And the truth of the matter is, it keeps you from really trusting God about anything. It fills your horizon. And what you need to see is what Elisha's servant needed to see. Elisha prayed for him. He said, Oh God, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I pray this morning that God would use this message, that by his spirit, that God would open your eyes that you may see. See, that, that's what happened to this father. He said, if you can, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. How quickly and dramatically Jesus turns the tables. The question is not whether he is able, but whether the father believes. But listen, and let's, let's give attention to this. This is not a faith in faith. Verse. This verse has been so wrongly taught, so abused. This is not have faith in faith, as a prosperity gospel would teach. To have faith in faith, one man said, it's like a dog chasing his tail, never takes us anywhere. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. Because he's the one that can do all things. True faith connects us with God and his omnipotent power. Jesus is not talking about a force that we possess. He's not talking about working up faith. It's not the amount of our faith that's at issue. It's the object of our faith. Please hear this. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. If our faith is in Christ, we will see the chariots of fire around us. If we have eyes to see, brothers and sisters, God is eager to answer. Jesus says, have faith in God. He's the one that can do all things. The psalmist says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all he 
pleases. He rules over all things. There is no if you can with God. No if you can with God. All of man benefits from common grace. God gives all good things. He's shown himself in creation. Colossians says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And in him all things hold together. He's shown himself in creation to all men. He's shown his kindness. He pours out rain upon the just and the unjust alike. And in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So, so, so we see in his son most perfectly one who lived a life of serving and loving others and gave his life as a sacrifice to pay for your sins, to pay for rebellion. Paul said to the Romans, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all things? So it's not a if you can He can do all things. The psalmist pictures, God God speaks to the psalmist, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Is Is that your picture of God? One who is eager to answer prayers. One who is eager to give. Jesus knows what's best for us, but he invites us to ask. He invites us to persevere. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. So the question is not whether he is able, but whether we believe. Jesus looks into this father's eyes and he challenges him to believe. Not to say if you can, but because you can. Brothers and sisters, divine ability is never the problem. Human unbelief is the problem. There is a reliable bridge between our need and God's provision. And that bridge is called faith trust, and dependency. The issue is not Jesus' ability to heal, but the Father's ability to trust. To experience God's power, we must believe God's Son. I love the response of the Father. It should encourage all of our hearts. Verse 24, immediately, right away, this, this man's heart is on display. The father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. There are two things that, that he makes very clear. Number one, that he did indeed have the kind of faith Jesus demanded. And number two, that this faith was imperfect, beset by fears and doubts. While acknowledging his weakness, he's saying, help me overcome my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the lifelong description of the faithful Christian. This is where each one of us lives in the valley of our lives. Now, now granted, there will be mountaintop times where we'll be able to trust the Lord perfectly and wonderfully, where we'll lay hold of something and be absolutely confident. And I love those times, but let me be honest, that's not where I spend most of my life. Most of our lives are spent dealing with this this question of doubt. A great definition of doubt is this. Doubt is two minds. Two minds. Part of my mind trusts God, part of my mind doubts. On any given situation, any given opportunity for faith and trust, I have two minds. I I wager you have two minds. I love God. I want to serve Him. I trust Him, but but I'm not really sure if He's going to answer that prayer. I want to believe Him, but it doesn't seem like He's given me what I need. I want to hold on to him, but 
I'm not sure is he going to come through for me. And so there's this battle that goes on. This battle that, that is a fight for faith. And like I said earlier, that fight becomes much more difficult when it's a long-standing issue. When it's something that you're working through month after month, year after year. And I know many of you fall into that camp. You're in that place. You're saying, yep, I understand that fight. Now let me, let me say something I hope will help you. There is a world of difference between fighting doubt and embracing unbelief. So please hear this. There's a world of difference. Every one of us fights doubt. Every one of us fights for faith, but that fight is so important. We want to believe. We seek to believe. We're, 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 we're studying the Scriptures. We're praying, Oh God, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. It's a worthy fight. It's an important fight. It's a fight we'll win. But ultimately, it's a fight that defines this world. There's a world of difference between that and what the scribes represented, which is wicked unbelief. John's, John's gospel says of the scribes, Jesus said this to the scribes, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse. Notice that word. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's a definition of unbelief. You refuse to come to me. The fight for faith requires that we acknowledge our weakness. That we acknowledge our need. And that we acknowledge the Savior. It's a humbling prayer. It's a prayer of coming, Jesus said, with empty hands, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. You know why? Because they're coming with need. They're coming acknowledging their need. Sometimes people that want to hold to unbelief appear to be very weak. Like, oh, no, no, I can't, I can't do this, I can't do this. But actually, that kind of unbelief is very strong. That kind of unbelief is saying, I'm not going to turn to God. I'm not going to trust Him. I re- I'm not holding on to Him. I'm not acknowledging my weakness. I'm not fighting for faith. I'm just going to live in unbelief. And if one does that, he's cut himself off from God. That's not where you live. If you're a Christian, you're not living in that place. You're living in a place of of desiring to find faith in God. I know that. And I want to come alongside you this morning and encourage that faith. Encourage that fight. And by the way, church, that's why we need each other. That was a great opportunity to say amen. That's why we need each other. Let me explain. If, if, If you fight alone, you're going to lose. If you fight alone, you're, you're, you're a target for Satan. We need each other. That's why the writer to Hebrews says, don't neglect assembling of yourselves together. That's why Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. There's a strength that comes. There's a strength that comes when we, when we come together. Ecclesiastes says, woe to the one who is alone. But where two or three, there's strength, there's safety. We need that. We need each other. We need to, more than just a meeting, we need to be in small groups and fellowship groups and in, in, in relationships so that we can say, would you pray for me? I'm struggling today. I'm having a hard day. I'm hurting. I'm in need. I'm feeling discouraged. Would you pray for me? Sure. Let's pray. Oh, what, how wonderful is a brother or sister in that time of need? We need each other. And, and that's the fight of faith. The fight of faith is a fight to experience God's power by believing God's Son. Brothers and sisters, if you feel weak, you're in good company. True faith always is aware of how small and inadequate it is. That's the reason that the Father said, 
I believe, help me. Help me in my unbelief. But if we understand that the circumstances of our lives are divinely arranged to draw our eyes away from the problem and to the Lord, that God allows us to experience pain and difficulty because He wants us to look to Him, to trust Him, to experience His power. Jesus is a Savior who wants to engage you and comfort you and be your greatest joy. He wants to fill your life with hope and faith and purpose. So He reveals our helplessness. He helps us to believe. And lastly, Jesus empowers humble faith. We see in verse 25 that Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. And the spirit must flee. We see here the absolute power of God. Jesus' absolute power over the demon. Let there be no fear that demons will win or that Satan will win. Jesus is absolutely in authority. But that leads to the question that the disciples ask in verse 28. When they got alone, they said, why could we not cast it out? It seemed easy for you. Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus responded, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The parallel section in Matthew's gospel adds, because of your little The implication here is that the disciples thought that they ought to have been able to do it. No doubt they had done it before. They had done it with the Lord around. But but when he was gone, they were unable. My suspicion is that these men men were, were trying to do something based on a pattern, based on a formula. They thought that they could pray a certain prayer and it would always work. And Jesus wanted them to know something. That, that we never outgrow our need for a prayer. That there is no sense that we can in our own strength accomplish the work of the kingdom. So when he says in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. He's, he's not talking about some keys to spiritual warfare or some demonic hierarchy. He's talking about the way we do ministry. The way we do ministry is by dependence on God. The way we do ministry is to depend upon Him for our grace, for our help. And He's going to tell them the night before they... He, he goes to the cross. Guys, I want you to remember this. Abide in me, and I in you. You cannot bear fruit apart from me. You can do no thing. There's a lesson that we need to hear. We will not be able to overcome in our own strength, by our own practices. There is no practice that you've done as a young person that you can now continue through through the rest of your life that you can do without God's help. The Christian life is all about relationship. It's all about friendship with God, nearness to God. Inadequacy is actually a gift that drives us to prayer. And this morning, well, this morning I want us to be able to, to end by looking to Him together. Because we need Him. I'm aware of that. Even as I'm preaching, I'm aware that, that for many of us, this isn't, just a, this isn't just a good message to think about. This is where we live. And folks, I, I want us to be a church that that walks in the good, that experiences the good of God's power working in us. And the heart of that is experiencing God's power by believing in God's Son. God's preparing us for His return. 
And like the disciples, we can anticipate lives of sacrifice, lives where we carry our cross daily. We are, as a people, in need of this faith, are we not? We're in need of God's help every day. And whenever we think we don't need God's help, God allows us to experience a situation to remind us how dependent we are. And so the, so, so what the question we need to ask really is this, two questions. Do you believe that God can do anything? And do you believe that he will do what he's promised to do? Do you believe in your life that God can overcome those challenges that you've been thinking about while I've been preaching? Do you believe that he is sufficient? And not only that he can, but that he will help you. Do you believe that he will do what he has promised to do? And if you're here this morning and recognize that you've never turned to Christ in repentance and faith, you've never turned from your sin and trusted in the Savior, you are probably in a place more desperate than you can realize. Because for you, you're not just in difficult circumstances, but you're dead in your sins and headed for sure and certain judgment. And there is this morning a Savior reaching out for you, saying, do you believe? Let us this morning respond as the father of the demonized boy. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Let's pray together. Lord, you've called us this morning to experience your power by believing in your Son. And this morning we take delight in focusing our heart and attention on Him. He is our Savior. He is not only able to do all good things, but willing. And Lord, this morning I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through very hard times, who have profound needs, who have ongoing, persistent issues, whether it's health or relationship or finances, perhaps a besetting sin that never seems to go away. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would, even now as we prepare to close, that you would would open up those hearts and bring hope. That we together would say, Lord, I, I believe Help me in my unbelief. That we would fight the good fight of faith. That we would not be a people who are marked by unbelief, but, in, but a passionate desire to honor you and please you. So Lord, help us in our weakness this morning, we pray. In Christ's name.